North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Dr. Victor Cha and I are joined on The Impossible State today by Dr. Sung Yoon Lee from Tufts University, who is an expert in the leadership of The Impossible State, North Korea, of course. Dr. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So first off, I'd like to ask you about what distinguishes the leadership style from Kim Il-sung's time to Kim Jong-il and then now to Kim Jong-un? Well, I suppose one might say every nation state has unique attributes, perhaps like each individual on the planet. But I like to say tongue-in-cheek that North Korea is not only unique, but uniquely unique. I mean, North Korea's approach to statecraft, both domestic politics and foreign policy, is so far out there, so different from most other normal nation states of the world, it's really different. As many of our listeners know, North Korea is, for example, the only country in the post-1945 world to produce and proliferate illicit drugs, ranging from opium, meth, heroin, and so on. North Korea is also the only nation state to systematically counterfeit another state's denomination the U.S. $100 bills as well as $50 bills. North Korea is perhaps the most totalitarian state the world has ever seen. The degree of control exerted by the state invading the private realm, the private life of its citizens is really unprecedented. And North Korea arguably is if not the worst, well, certainly one of the worst violators of human rights in the world, a monumental 372-page-long UN Commission of Inquiry report on human rights in North Korea, published in February 2014, alleged that North Korea's crimes against humanity, the scale, nature, and gravity of North Korea's crimes are, quote, without parallel in the contemporary world, end quote. So, in many ways, North Korea is an extremely cruel, exploitative state that visits upon most of its citizens, pervasive hunger and misery and gloom. And in that regard, all this, what I've mentioned with respect to North Korea's various characteristics, this is intentionally created. It has been intentionally created and enforced by the three generations of Kims, going back to the original so-called great leader, Kim Il-sung. Victor, I want to bring you into this discussion. You, of course, have chronicled North Korea in your you know, now classic book, The Impossible State, which we took for the name of our podcast. And we're going to talk about Dr. Lee's 
forthcoming book in a bit, which is called The Sister, which is about the rise of Kim Jong-un's sister, Kim Yo-jong. Victor, can you tell me more about the leadership that Dr. Lee just spoke about? So I think first it's great to have Sung Yun on the on the podcast. I, it's his first time on the podcast that we really welcome him to join us. On the leadership, I mean, I think everything that Sung Yun said I agree with. There are differences in leadership style very clearly in different contexts in which these leaders operated. So, for example, Kim Il-sung, in terms of his style, was sort of a larger-than-life figure who was both you know, a god, a political leader, and a maternal figure to the people of North Korea, and um, was always sort of seen as being out and about the people, breaking bread with them, visiting them at factories, hugging children close to him, all these sorts of things. So very much of an outgoing, charismatic leader. His successor, the the son, Kim Jong-il, was not like that at all. He was actually a very reclusive uh, leader and was also operating in a very different context in the sense that he took over, as uh, Sung Yun knows well, after the sudden death of Kim Il-sung, where there was a famine in the country that killed 10% of the population, was very focused on building up the weapons programs and was very much of a recluse, didn't do much public speaking. There's very little footage of him speaking publicly. And then I would say that the, the current leader, Kim Jong-un, is almost an effort to throw back to the days of Kim Il-sung. Physically, they've tried to make him look like his grandfather, the same sort of haircut, the same sort of um, very uh, outgoing style pictured uh, with his wife a lot, something that we didn't see with North Korean leaders before. So it's almost like a, a going back to the olden days of Kim Il-sung trying to sort of recreate a better time in North Korea's history and a more hands-on uh, hands leadership. So there definitely are different styles. And part of that, I think, is personality driven by uh, the grandfather, the son and the grandson. But part of it also, I think, has to do with the overall context in which these people uh, have been and are leading, are leading the country today. And what is that context right now to both of you? You know, it's still, of course, the impossible state, and it's one of the places we understand the least. So in that context, especially, you know, given the pandemic, what is the leadership style now of Kim Jong-un? Well, I would say... Kim Jong-un to date, over the past decade or so that he's been in power, has yet to match his father and his grandfather in the sheer number of kills. That is, the number of people who have been killed by decisions made by the supreme leader. Probably Kim Jong-un has executed a few hundred officials, including, of course, notably his uncle, that nipping wrath of December 2013, when Chang Sung-taek, the purported number two person in the North Korean hierarchy, next only to Kim Jong-un, was humiliated in public, taken out and beaten and then executed. But Kim Jong-il, his father, Kim Jong-un's father, oversaw an unprecedented famine in the mid to late 1990s. As Professor Cha mentioned, Kim Jong-il acceded to the throne upon his father's death in July 1994, and the famine really started later that year and took on full force in 1995 and did not really end until perhaps 1998, during which time an estimated million or two million people 
died of starvation and related illnesses. That UN report that I mentioned, the UN Commission of Inquiry report of 2014, very compellingly makes the allegation that the famine was man-created, man-sustained. It was man-made and sustained by Kim Jong-il, and that the North Korean regime pursued a policy of, quote, knowingly causing prolonged starvation, end quote. So when we talk about the degree of cruelty and disregard for human life, as of today, one might be able to argue that Kim Jong-un has proven himself not to be as cruel as his father. The grandfather, Kim Il-sung, of course, started the Korean War, which led to the death of perhaps 2 million of North Korean citizens during the war. So that tremendous amount of bloodshed is on Kim Il-sung's hands. Yet, I would argue that Kim Jong-un has the potential to eclipse his predecessors in the number of deaths he may cause, because Whereas Kim Il-sung never possessed nuclear weapons, we know that the grandson, the third generational great leader, has a nuclear arsenal of perhaps 50 bombs. They have ICBMs, and Kim Jong-un is obviously committed to growing, further expanding his lethal nuclear arsenal. And in this year, 2022, we're living in an entirely different world, it seems, and I'm not referring to the onset of the pandemic in 2020, but the fact that Putin, the Russian leader, and Kim Jong-un and his sister Kim Yo-jong routinely make threats of preemptive nuclear strike, Putin on Ukraine, of course, and the Kim siblings on South Korea, normalizing the notion, making it routine, and both Kim Jong-un and Kim Yo-jong have repeatedly threatened to preemptively nuke South Korea, visit upon South Korea, something short, a miserable fate, short of total destruction and ruin, as the first sister said in a statement from early April. And Kim Jong-un himself has been making such threats. So we have to take these threats seriously. Certainly, North Korea has the means, the capability to wreak havoc on that scale. Does it have the intention? We don't know for sure but we must take the threat seriously. Victor, are we taking the threat seriously enough? Uh, well, you know, it's a good question. I think we're very focused right now on the war in Ukraine. And then after that, the implications of the war on China and Taiwan, that seems to be our focus right now. While the weapons threat from North Korea really looks unstoppable at this point, they're both their nuclear and ballistic missile programs. So I'm, I'm, I'm also quite concerned by the increasing rhetoric by the North Korean leadership with regard to liberal talk about the use of nuclear weapons, even as a first strike tool. But I, let me just, can I, if I could just add something else on Kim Jong-un, I mean, I think in addition to everything that Song Yun said, what's interesting, I think, about Kim Jong-un when I compare him to his father and his grandfather is that there seems to at least be in public speeches in the on-the-spot guidance that's reported in the North Korean press, there seems to be more of a willingness to admit that there are problems in North Korea in a way that I don't think we've really seen before, whether it's criticism of the way something's been built or constructed, or whether it's acknowledging food problems, or whether it's acknowledging that there is a pandemic, that the COVID-19 pandemic is in the country 
there's more of a openness to admitting some of the difficulties that they are facing. Now, whether that is for empathetic value in terms of part of this narrative of how the leadership in North Korea always feels the pain of the people, because that's often the narrative, the, the, the sort of formal narrative that they try to create, which is that the leader is suffering as much as the people, so the people should never feel uh, any sense of animosity to the leadership because they are suffering as much as the people. We all know it's a lie, but uh, but uh, that's sort of the narrative that they create. Or whether it's actual, you know, it, it's an actual uh, sign that there's an understanding on the part of the leadership that, that everything is not being candy coated for the leadership, and that there's an understanding that there are real, real deep, deep imperfections in the country and, and the way it's run. The problem with the latter uh, hypothesis is that you would then expect to see more efforts at reform in North Korea than we've seen under Kim Jong-un. You know, at the beginning when Kim Jong-il died and Kim Kim Jong-un took over, there were lots of people, lots of experts in D.C. that were saying, oh, this guy, the third leader of North Korea is different. You know, he was raised outside of North Korea. He went to international school. You know, he likes basketball, all this stuff. He likes pizza. And everybody thought that might mean he'd be more of an enlightened reformer. Well, that certainly didn't turn out to be the case. And so I think that's clearly one of the big disappointments. And if anything, as Song Yun said, the the vast majority of the energy uh, of his leadership has been focused on continuing to build the programs that his father, Kim Jong-il, put a lot of effort in building in the 1990s. You know, it's Victor, it's interesting. We haven't seen a period in quite a long time where North Korea was this out of the front pages of the news. And like you said, you know, Ukraine, Taiwan, politics, just so many other headlines. What does that do to our national security if people aren't paying attention to what's going on in North Korea? Yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly worrying. I mean, on the one hand, the answer to that question is, well, that may be the case in the media, but the professionals you know, whether it's in the White House or the State Department or the DOD or the intelligence community are focused on North Korea and the threats they they pose. Having said that, we all know that policy to some extent, and certainly at the highest levels, is driven to some extent by what the media reports on, right? I mean, you know, the White House has to respond to an op-ed in the New York Times that says the policy is a failure on North Korea or the policy is a failure on Iran. They ha- they're forced to respond to that. And so there isn't that pressure, if you will, on the administration to make North Korea a front burner issue because all, the, all of the, the time is being taken up by Ukraine, by, by China, Taiwan, by January 6th, by COVID, by inflation, you know, a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of, you know, take your pick, a whole bunch of other things. And that's concerning for people like Professor Lee and myself because at the same time that the focus is elsewhere, North Korea is methodically, steadily advancing elements of their programs, particularly lately their missile programs, that pose real threats to U.S. Uh, national missile defense capabilities. So the fact that it is not in the news is is not good news, I think, for the, those of us who work on this, and that, you know, unfortunately, it's going to take a seventh nuclear test for the media pay attention. But even then, I don't think they're going to pay attention to it the way that they paid attention to the the first six tests. It's really interesting points. Dr. Lee, let's, we've talked about Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and Kim Jong-un, but you're an expert in the rise of the sister, Kim Yo-jong. 
Tell us about her and her rise. Well, we know that North Korea is extremely weird, that North Korea has shown a passion for pursuing its national interests with great zeal, perhaps with the fervor of a zealot. In that aspect, the rise of a young female official who I think by many accounts is viewed around the world as de facto number two. I certainly view her as such in the North Korean hierarchy. In such an extremely male chauvinistic political culture like North Korea, to have a very powerful, fearful woman sort of co-crime boss as the de facto number two next to her brother is an anomaly. What does that imply in the long term? Well, we'll have to wait and see. But already we have seen that Kim Yo-jong is very effective. Just last week in mid-August, August 10th, local time in North Korea, she gave what we know to be her first televised political speech at a party event, celebrating with her brother the purported victory over COVID in North Korea. And she spoke with a slightly, in a slightly tremulous tone. Perhaps she was nervous, which would be understandable. I remember the first time I ever taught in a classroom, I could barely speak and my legs were shaking. But, you know, we, we saw Kim Jong-un also show that kind of nervousness when he gave his first major public speech in April 2012, just a few months after taking over. At the same time, when Kim Yo-jong visited South Korea for the opening ceremony of the Pyeongchang Winter Olympic Games in February 2018, she exuded confidence imperiousness even, sitting across the table on her second day in South Korea from President Moon Jae-in in the Blue House. She carried herself in a way to show that she was the boss. She would tilt her head sideways, cast her gaze down as President Moon eagerly spoke to her, even sitting at the edge of his seat, leaning forward toward the North Korean princess, she looked bored and she would tilt her head slightly up and look down at her counterparts under her nose. And that kind of imperiousness doesn't just grow you know, out of nowhere. She, like her brother, has had royalty training, rigorous training. And of course, the Kim siblings have known nothing but extreme extravagance and deference by everyone except for their parents, perhaps. So she charmed much of South Korea and perhaps beyond just by showing up, smiling, shaking hands, eating, drinking, you know, showing up to events. She did not give a single statement. It was hard to hear her voice even, but yet she wooed South Korea as the harbinger of peace and reconciliation. And I think much of that is based on many of us, both men, women in any country, uh, the kind of attitudinal condescension that we naturally harbor looking at North Korea, and perhaps in Kim Yo-jong's case, also latent sexism. A young, inexperienced woman who's trying to do her best, okay, let's, you know, let's embrace her, let's believe what she has to say. That kind of 
patronizing view, I would suggest, has really been the root cause of our misunderstanding and misinterpretation, wrong interpretation of North Korea's intentions over the past several decades. We tend to think that North Korea, by virtue of its weirdness, merely reacts to what the United States says or does, whether it's a message of civility or hostility. I would say North Korea has been calling the shots. I would say North Korea has been the driver in nuclear talks more than the United States over the past 30 years. So Kim Il-jong is an entirely different weapon in the North Korean diplomatic arsenal. A young woman, by virtue of her gender, who casts a softer feminine glow on the very brutish cold facade, on the ugly facade that is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. So she is to be respected, in my view, and not looked down upon. And I mean that in the following sense. When she puts on her charm offensive again, and I'm sure that they will come, perhaps, I don't know, late next year, if she says, I would like to visit the White House, it will be exceedingly difficult for the Biden administration or a successor to turn their back on her. And when she shows up in New York or D.C. or again in Seoul in the future, I think the odds are she will be able to charm her audience once again, even as foul-mouthed as she has shown herself to be, calling former President Moon Jae-in all kinds of unkind names, mentally deranged, scared dog, parrot raised in America, and so on, even with her propensity to be cruel, even with her lengthy diatribe, which we saw once again last week at this political party in on August 10th, threatening nuclear extermination against South Korea, calling human rights activists human scum and so on. When she puts on the charm, I fear it might work again. We must not underestimate her. Victor, do you want to chime in on, on the sister? Yeah, I mean, well, so one of my favorites in terms of the uh, the rhetoric that she spews is yeah, a parrot raised in the United States. That's that's a the, to describe South Korea. That's that's a classic one. That's an absolute classic. Yeah, I mean, I think her her rise is, rise is the right word to use to describe sort of the emergence of the sister in the sense that you know initially we knew very little about Kim Jong Un when he came to power. We knew even less about. The sister, who first started showing up in pictures as one of the staff behind Kim Jong-un as he, as he started out, and North Korea watchers would sort of finger her in pictures as this is the younger sister. Where we really saw her start to emerge was in, as Professor Lee said, in the inter-Korean summit meetings, where she was much more present, but she seemed to play the role of an aide to her brother, more than anything else, uh, the one who would hand him the pen to sign something or the one who would get him an ashtray if he was smoking a cigarette. But at the same time that those small gestures showed that she was a close and trusted aide, I think it also demonstrated how much power she had in the system because everything else is choreographed in in the moves of the North Korean leader. Everything is choreographed down to to the centimeter or to the minute. And yet here was the younger sister sort of freely moving around anywhere she wishes in that choreographed event. So she was doing things to help her brother, 
almost like an A, but at the same time, given the context in which everything is so structured and choreographed around the leader of North Korea, her ability to move freely to me was a sign of power. Now, as uh, Sung-in is saying, we're seeing her playing a much more important role in declaratory statements when it comes to denigrating either the United States or South Korea. Take your pick because she denigrates them both equally. And then this big speech that she made. And to me, what was interesting about the speech that she made is I do agree with Sung-yoon that she did seem a, a bit nervous in that speech. Um, and that is juxtaposed to when she met the South Korean president, where she had the entire world, certainly all the eyes of South Korea and perhaps a lot of the eyes around the world focused on her when she went to the Winter Olympics in, in Pyeongchang, South Korea. And yet she seemed so calm and at ease. And I think that's because she understood that the whole world, you know, the majority of the world is peace-loving, and if they see the North Koreans come out, they're hoping that it's a sign, it's a, it's a signal, of, it's an olive branch, it's a signal of a willingness to make peace. So it's almost as if she knew she was walking into an audience that was all going to be hanging on her every word, her every smile. Whereas when she's speaking in front of elder uh, members of the party and the military, she's understandably probably more nervous because even though she is a part of the family, there may be much more of a discriminatory view about how to think about her role as her brother tries to establish her to have this very important voice in the North Korean system. Thus far, it appears as though her main statements of policy really have to do with foreign policy, in particular with regard to the adversaries, that is, South Korea and the United States. Her role in domestic policy is less is less clear. Maybe Song Yun has a better better sense of that. And her continued capacity to spew invectives about the Americans and about South Koreans, you know, speaks to her desire to build the credentials as sort of a hawk, a hardliner, because of course she doesn't have the military credentials that the grandfather had. And you know, clearly that her brother and uh, her father didn't have, uh, or Kim Jong-il, did not have those military credentials. But as Sung-yoon said, there is, th this is the first woman that's playing this overtly political role. And so there is probably some effort to compensate for that as well. Do we have any indication that she may want to visit the United States? None as yet, but I wouldn't rule it out because, again, she is a powerful weapon in North Korea's diplomatic toolkit. She has shown herself to be very capable in Pyeongchang in Seoul in February 2018, and also, as Professor Cha mentioned, at various summit meetings between President Moon and Kim Jong-un and between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. She's been shadowing her brother. And clearly, yes, the level of trust, confidence, affection, and the degree of power that she enjoys within the North Korean system is quite visible. It became quite dramatically audible even, almost uh, certainly visible, when she had the North Korea-South Korea joint liaison office built entirely with South Korean funds, demolished, blown up on June 16th, 2020, just three days after in a written statement threatening to do just that. And she mentioned in her June 13th, 2020 statement, written statement, that she has been authorized by the chairman, referring to her brother, by the party, 
the Workers' Party of Korea and by the state to conduct policy towards South Korea and the United States. So she is, you know, really a novelty in the North Korean political system and culture. And uh, there have been rumors, according to various reports from sources inside North Korea, that she has been ordering executions of high-ranking officials and smugglers, public executions, not only for alleged crimes, but also because she did not like the way they looked at her. And this kind of vicious purge, reportedly, has led officials to avert their gaze, not even look at her straight, and try not to come under her radar even favorably, because they are so fearful that she's going to have them killed, as her brother has shown a propensity to do such things as well. So, you know, in this male-dominated political culture, the fact that you have a really powerful woman is an interesting phenomenon. Now, would she succeed her brother if Kim Jong-un were all of a sudden to become incapacitated? And North Korea watchers differ on this. Many North Koreans who've lived in North Korea, men and women, believe that this is impossible for North Korea to accept, to embrace a female supreme leader. I take a different view only because, in my view, there is no other Mount Pektu bloodline person who is a viable candidate to be the next supreme leader until perhaps one of Kim Jong-un's own children, who are reportedly still young, grows into adulthood, which will not happen probably for the next decade or so. So if Kim Jong-un died today, I don't see any other viable Mount Pektu bloodline family member other than Kim Yo-jong. And this is really the source of the false source of the North Korean dynasty's legitimacy, this Mount Pektu myth that Kim Il-sung fought against the Japanese colonialists out of camps on the foothills, in the foothills of Mount Pektu, and that Kim Jong-il was born atop Mount Pektu in February 1942, although we know that he was born the year before in an army barrack in Habarovsk in the Russian Far East. Why? Because his parents were there. And that was the greatest career move ever by a young Kim Il-sung who uh, switched from the Chinese Communist Party army to the Soviet army when he joined the Soviet army in late 1941 and was made a captain the next year in a 200-man regiment of the Soviet 25th Far East forces. And that is why he was handpicked, Kim Il-sung, was handpicked by the Soviets, the Russians, to become the leader of North Korea. So there's a little bit of, yes, legitimacy there. He was a small-time guerrilla fighter, but North Korea has spun this small historical fact into a hyper-inflated narrative that Kim Il-sung single-handedly liberated Korea from Japanese colonialism. Of course, there is no mention of the U.S. role, the Pacific War, Japan's surrender to the United States and the Allies. It's Kim Il-sung who did it all. And this false narrative has to be maintained and protected. So on this question of uh, the potential for the sister to come to Washington, you know, I think this, Andrew, is a very interesting question. And it would pose real dilemmas for the Biden administration, because on the one hand, 
they want very much to establish contact with North Korea. North Korea has been fairly unresponsive to all of the uh, entreaties by the United States to engage. On the other hand, as Sung Yun said, the human rights record of this still young leader in North Korea is, is already quite bad if we understand these reported stories of executions to be true. So it would pose a real dilemma, I think, for the administration whether they would have something like this. Under, under the previous administration, under Trump, I don't think it would have been a problem at all. I think Donald Trump would have been happy to welcome her to the White House and you know, take her down to the bowling alley or, or, or whatever. But I think it would be a real problem for the, and a dilemma for the Biden administration. And it would be a very clever move on the part of the North Koreans to try to do something, to try to do something like that. The other thing I would say with regard to that is that if there were something like this to happen, it would be much more likely that the sister would come before the brother. Because while summit meetings do give North Korea what they want in terms of an equal seat at the table with the United States, in their minds, presumably as a de facto nuclear weapon state, the meeting between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump in Hanoi was an absolute disaster for the North Koreans. And I think in many ways has made them gun shy about doing another summit of that, of that level, President Biden or future U.S. presidents, uh, because of the risk of failure. I don't think that they want to go through that particular uh, embarrassment again. So, so that speaks even more to the idea of the sister coming to Washington as a first step. You know, whether she could actually negotiate on behalf of her brother is an entirely other question. I've gotten no sense that she has been actively involved in negotiations. She has played this role in terms of declaratory policy and propaganda, but her role in actual uh, negotiation, which would be something that would be necessary given that the leader himself is not going to negotiate, you know, that I think is also an open question. Well, great. Gentlemen, I think we're about time. Thank you so much for your time today. Fascinating discussion about the family, the Kim family, and certainly about the sister. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Andrew. We look forward to reading Professor Lee's book when it comes out next year. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.